0: It's good to see you all again. As I was preparing this talk this afternoon, I just was aware there was a warm feeling in my heart. And it was coming from the anticipation of being with all of you again this evening. And as I tuned into that feeling, I noticed that it it morphed into a sense of gratitude. Gratitude for the good fortune that we have, for the causes and conditions that have come together for us to be here on retreat for all these weeks and months. And as I was reflecting on that and feeling into it, that sense of good fortune was really highlighted by the knowledge that this is such a rare opportunity, and there are many, many people in the world, many beings who are experiencing all kinds of distress, who don't have access to these teachings or to these kinds of opportunities that might help them to overcome that distress. And as I just stayed with that truth, I felt my heart and mind settle, become steady. And then this wordless determination came up to really make the most of being here for the benefit of all beings, as Brian so beautifully spoke about last night. So perhaps just in that small snapshot of my experience this afternoon, some of you might recognize the topic that I'd like to explore tonight, which is the four Brahma Vihara qualities of kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity, which I touched into briefly on Thursday evening. And I'd like to start this exploration just by highlighting again the interrelationship between insight practice, the wisdom practice of vipassana, and the cultivation of these four highly skillful qualities of heart and mind. So in our practice instructions in the morning so far, we've mostly been focused on developing a strong foundation of sati, mindfulness, and steadiness, stability of mind, samadhi, so that we can clearly see what's happening in here, in this body, this heart, this mind. See that without falling into our habitual patterns of reactivity. And it's this steady, steady, non-reactive capacity of the mind that supports transformative insight to arise. For all of us, though, there will be times on retreat, and of course in our everyday lives, where more challenging situations come up, situations perhaps of intense physical pain, emotional pain, and at that time, even though we might be doing our best to meet what's happening without getting overwhelmed, there are times when our mindfulness and wisdom isn't quite strong enough yet to meet the intensity of whatever that situation is. So one aspect of the Buddha's teachings that I appreciate more and more is that he offered a range of different approaches, methods, techniques, including these four Brahmavihara practices that give us another powerful set of tools Tools that help us to meet those more intense times of our life. And so it's these that I'd like to explore tonight. So, as I briefly mentioned on Thursday evening in the introduction to Metta, these beautiful qualities support our insight practice by making us much less susceptible to afflictive mind states. Afflictive mind states such as the five hindrances and those four, sorry, three, there's so many numbers, those three core qualities of greed, of hatred, of delusion that cause us so much torment when we're in the grip of them. The four Brahmaviharas, by contrast, are fundamentally skillful and pleasant states that protect and they enhance our well-being. So to use a physical health analogy, The Brahma Vihara, they act as both preventative and cure. So they act as preventative by making the heart and mind more resilient so that we're just less prone to being attacked by painful thoughts and emotions. So sometimes I think of these Brahma Viharas being like vitamin C for our emotional immune system. we just take a dose every day, we have a much better chance of not getting sick. Because when we have a strong foundation, when the heart is grounded in these qualities, it's just much harder for the afflictive states to get their hooks into us. I'm guessing most of you know that from your own experience. You when things are going well here on retreat, so-called wealth, and you're experiencing more ease and happiness. Those little things that otherwise might have just been irritating or maybe depressing Seem to just bounce off. And if we were to look more closely at what we are calling a good mood, we'd probably find that one or more of these Brahma was present to some degree. Even if we didn't recognize it at the time, there was still the protection of being grounded in kindness or compassion, appreciative joy or equanimity. Again, from your own experience, um, pretty sure that you know the opposite true too. When we're in a bad mood that underlying negative mind state tends to amplify things and more and more afflictive states come in. However, when we do eventually recognize that we've got caught then the Brahma Vihara can be a powerful remedy. So for example metta, goodwill. there's a clue right there in that translation that Goodwill is the antidote to ill will or aversion. Compassion is the antidote to suffering, to pain of all kinds. Appreciative joy is the antidote to envy, jealousy, resentment. And equanimity is the antidote to all types of reactivity, of imbalance and bias. So the Brahma-vihara, they're a really useful set of tools to have in our toolbox, or perhaps we can think of them as nourishing ingredients to have in our Dharma pantry. And yet in my own experience, metta tends to get the most emphasis of these four, and we don't always hear as much about the other three or how to practice with them. Maybe that's partly just because in a standard nine-day retreat, there aren't enough days, there isn't enough time. But here we've got the relative luxury of another five weeks. So we may be able to explore each of them in more detail. So, another reason that I wanted to bring in all four tonight is because, as I mentioned on Thursday, early on in my own practice, I was a meta skeptic. And I actually had a lot of ill will towards goodwill. <laughs> and actually, what helped me get over that was compassion. At that time I hadn't realized that there were other heart practices beside metta, which at that time, because of my conditioning and my misunderstanding, seemed to me to be fluffy and forced and fake. But when I heard about compassion, that made sense to me. I got, for certain I was suffering, I understood other beings were suffering too. And that gave me more motivation to do the practice. So I think I spent maybe a couple of years just doing compassion practice as my primary Brahma Vihara. And surprisingly, when I did come back to metta later, it was much more accessible. So I just offer that in case any of you are struggling with metta practice. Maybe for some of you, one of the other three Brahma Vihara might feel more relevant, might help you to find a way in. So before I go into a little bit more detail about what each of these qualities are, just a little bit about the term vihara itself. Like many Pali terms, it's not so easy to translate into English because the word Brahma apparently refers to a kind of god that at the time of the Buddha was worshipped by the Brahmin tradition in India. We don't really have an equivalent of Brahma in our own culture So it's sometimes translated as heaven or heavenly instead. The term vihara literally means dwelling place. So brahma vihara means the dwelling place of brahma. But in English we more usually translate it as divine abodes or sublime abidings or heavenly realms or boundless states. And I like to tune into this aspect of vihara as being an abiding, a dwelling place or a home. Because, in fact, these four states, they're our true home. They're a refuge for our hearts and minds. Because when our hearts and minds are not assailed by stress, distress, difficulty, this is where we naturally abide or dwell. And just like in our physical homes, there's a sense of ease there. It's a place or a state where we can feel relaxed, comfortable, more who we truly are. The second aspect of the term Brahma Vihara, just to touch into, is this quality of boundlessness, limitlessness. And so they're sometimes called the four immeasurables. And the idea is that we cultivate them so fully that they can become unlimited, boundless, completely unconditional. Just to acknowledge, that's a pretty high bar. So before that idea starts to reinforce maybe any pre-existing conditions of inadequacy, it's important to remember all of these practices are trainings. We start where we are. And then with patience, we gradually let these different qualities of love, we train in them so that they develop gradually, naturally. We can't force them, as I said the other night. So with this training, traditionally we start with metta, because in the insight tradition, metta is the foundation that the other three develop from. And as you know, I think usually this is translated into English as loving kindness. But just to point out that in English, again, the word love has a pretty wide range of meanings, some of them that are not actually that compatible with the love we're cultivating in metta. So very casually, we can talk about loving ice cream, which is more a form of greed. Or if we think of romantic love, We see in movies, it's often obsessional, emotional, unstable, doesn't last. In some ways, it's the opposite of the kind of love that we're cultivating with metta. So metta as a Brahma-vihara doesn't have strings attached. It's ultimately freely offered. So generally I tend to prefer either not to translate metta at all so that you can find your own word or phrase that makes sense to you or to think of it as kindness. Kindness, goodwill, benevolence or friendliness. And actually in some of the suttas metta is defined simply as non-ill will. So hopefully if we can't perhaps managed actual meta, at least non-ill will might feel a little more accessible. And again, because these are gradual trainings, we want to start where it comes most easily. And for most of us, that means keeping it simple, keeping it simple and natural. So some of you who've been on retreats with me before, you know that I've, in my own practice, one way in for me to make these practices easier was to start with non-human beings. Because often our relationship to animals, to birds, to fish, maybe even to insects, it's usually less complicated than with actual human beings. So I've started this kind of a fun project where whatever retreat center I'm in, because I teach in different parts of the world, I tried to tune in to the creatures around that center and see if there are specific creatures that can help me to evoke these different Brahmavihara qualities. I think recently someone, maybe Brian, mentioned, for example, the red efts, those little newts that are here in the woods at IMS. He said they evoke a sense of metta for him and me too, I have the same response. I don't know if you do when you're walking through the woods and your eye catches sight of one of those little orange reptiles. Whenever I see one, there's just this little flicker of warmth in my heart. And for a moment or two, whatever I'm preoccupied with just disappears. And unlike some of the other wildlife around here, these afts move quite slowly. So it's possible just to spend a bit of time being with them. And the more I do that, the more care I feel for them. And I want to avoid stepping on them as I'm in the woods. So you may just try that now if you close your eyes for a moment and think back to when you saw a red eft, a little orange newt. When you think of that little being Is there perhaps just a little flicker of warmth at the heart center? Maybe a little trace of a smile. I see some little smiles or a softening of the eyes. And if you can get a little taste of that, just recognize it as a flavor of metta. Or if there's nothing there, don't worry, maybe reptiles just aren't your thing. (laughs) Maybe there's some other wild or domestic creature that works for you. So you might even play with that when you're out walking. Just see. Check out different creatures and see if there is one that might bring up that natural warmth of metta. So metta is the foundation quality of kindness, goodwill, friendliness. Then when metta turns towards suffering, it flowers naturally as compassion, karuna, which is the second of the Brahma-vihara. And compassion is the willingness to turn towards pain, stress, distress, suffering, dukkha in all of its forms, to meet that pain with kindness, And when possible, to help it to release. And it's because of this orientation towards the relief of suffering that compassion is not simply empathy, it's not only the heart that vibrates in response to our own or others' pain. There's also that inclination to help relieve that pain, if at all possible. Now, sometimes people ask, well, what's the difference between metta and compassion? And one distinction is that whereas metta is a kind of a, a more generalized goodwill or friendliness, compassion has a more specific orientation towards pain and suffering. So there's a close connection between the two, but energetically they feel a little bit different. So just to see if you can get a direct sense of that, another animal story from around here. And this one's a little more painful, but... As you listen, keep in mind that compassion also includes the orientation to the relief of suffering. So I think it was last time I was teaching this retreat at IMS, I was walking with some friends along Pleasant Street, and we noticed that there were some animals, small animals that had been squashed on the road. And as we got closer, we saw that they were baby turtles, probably newly hatched, and they'd wandered onto the road and been hit by cars. And so we were feeling, maybe like you, a little bit oh, sad at the destruction of life. And then we noticed there were four baby turtles right on the edge of the road who'd survived. So my friends and I, we picked one up each, and we carefully moved them off into the undergrowth and with the wish that they would be safe. And for me, just watching my friends picking up these turtles with so much care and doing the same thing myself, that was a moment of compassion in action. So I wonder, as you heard that story, perhaps you visualized it or imagined it or maybe had a similar experience yourself, did you notice any particular energetic resonance in the body or the heart? And if you did, did it feel a little different than metta? So this is part of the skill training of these brahma-vihara, to be able to tune in to the body, the heart, the mind. And notice, how do these different flavors of love affect us? So another benefit of knowing how each of these brahma-vihara feel is that if or when we recognize that our practice is getting off balance in some way, we can switch to one of the other Brahmavihara to help us get centered again. So, for example, if we were practicing compassion and we find ourselves getting lost in sorrow, then it can be a good idea to turn to the third Brahmavihara, which is mudita, often translated as sympathetic joy, altruistic joy or appreciative joy, because traditionally the orientation here is towards sharing in other people's happiness and good fortune. And I've noticed in exploring these qualities that of the four, Mudita seems to be the poor cousin in some way. It doesn't get nearly as much attention as the other three. And I wonder if that's perhaps because in dominant culture, with its competitive and highly individualistic values, appreciating the success and good fortune of other people, it doesn't come so naturally. So for many people, this one can be challenging. But if we persevere, we find that being able to celebrate other people's happiness has some surprising benefits. So as His Holiness the Dalai Lama famously said, If you can feel happy for other people, then you increase your own chances of happiness by about 7 billion. So 7 billion being the approximate population of the world. And as we continue cultivating mudita, we might realize it has a lot of other positive side effects. It's a very powerful antidote to that conditioned sense of separateness of isolation, of lack, that is so pervasive for so many people. So when we can attune to our own good qualities, to others' good qualities, we feel more connected to others, kinder and more generous. And we recognize that tuning into others' happiness supports our own happiness more than perhaps we could have imagined. So just to see if we can get a... a, more direct flavor of mudita then. I'll give another animal example. Usually I try to stay with the local animals, but because that last story about turtles is a bit painful, I thought I'd try and bring in a more positive turtle encounter. This one comes from a time when I was living in New South Wales in Australia, quite a few years ago now. And at that time, that part of Australia was in the middle of a serious drought. And a friend and I, we'd planned a camping trip, and this friend, he has a real affinity with reptiles of all kinds. And so we were driving through outback New South Wales through this really bone-dry farmland. And every now and then we would see a dam or a watering hole in one of the Uh, farms there and there was almost no water in any of them there was just that cracked, dried mud and we drove for hours and hours through this baked farmland and then at one point my friend suddenly slammed on the brakes and put the car into reverse and I looked back trying to see what had made him stop but all I could see was this little brown lump in the middle of the road and to me it could have just been a piece of rubbish But my friend, because of his affinity for reptiles, he immediately recognized it as a turtle and one that had probably crawled out of one of those drying up dams looking for water. So we went back, and my friend picked up the turtle to bring it into the car with us so that we could try and find it some water. And not surprisingly, the turtle wasn't that keen on this experience. (laughs) So it pulled in its head and its limbs. And it was sitting on the dashboard in front of me, and it released a pretty small puddle of pee. <laughs> but I can tell you, even though it was a very small quantity, dehydrated turtle pee is pretty potent. <laughs> so I can still smell the memory of that. And because of the drought, we ended up driving quite a long way with this turtle in the car with us. But eventually, we came to some actual flowing water with a bridge, And so my friend picked up the turtle and carried it in the palm of his hand. And then he very gently lowered it into the stream, not too quickly, so the turtle wouldn't get shocked. And when the turtle felt the cool water flowing all around it, its head and its legs came out. But surprisingly, it didn't immediately dive off into the water. It actually sat there for quite a while. And then eventually it turned its head and it looked at each of us, making actual eye contact for quite a few moments. And in that moment of eye contact, I just felt this surge of delight. And I was trying to imagine what it would have been like for that turtle to have been sitting in that slowly drying up water hole, taking the risk to leave the mud, to plod along the road with no idea, is there actually fresh water anywhere? And all that time being vulnerable to predators, to cars, and then suddenly being pulled out of that environment, placed in something completely strange and unknown, again, probably wondering death any moment, and then suddenly, finally, feeling its whole body submerged in cool, flowing water, coming back to full health, to full life. And I imagine that was a moment of turtle (laughs) nibbana. So again, as you hear this description, you might notice, was there any flicker of response? Any sympathetic trace of delight or joy or gratitude? And if yes, that's in the terrain of mudita. And you might notice if it feels just slightly different energetically from metta and from compassion. Speaking of dehydrated turtles is making me thirsty. So now we come to the fourth of the four Brahmavihara, which is upeka, usually translated as equanimity. And This isn't such a common word in English anymore. In fact, I don't think I'd ever heard of it until I started coming into contact with these teachings. But just as a very simple definition to start with, it means that balance of mind, evenness, steadiness, stability, composure. And it's the capacity to meet whatever we experience without getting lost in reactivity to it. And just to be clear, this non-reactivity is not a dull non-responsiveness or a disconnection. This true equanimity has a a subtle, refined, energetic quality to it. We're open to whatever presents itself without moving into wanting or not wanting, clinging or resisting. So it's a quality of acceptance. And in its deepest level of peace, So no doubt we'll be talking more about equanimity later on in the retreat. So for now, just to say that the Pali word upekka, it has etymological roots in words to do with seeing, with vision. And I understand the literal translation means "to look over." In other words, to be in a position to see the bigger picture. So in many ways it links directly to clear seeing, to insight, to vipassana. So one way I think of equanimity is it can be a bit like that experience if you've had it of climbing up a mountainside and after a lot of uphill effort maybe I finally get above the tree line and then I can see the whole expanse of the countryside below and I understand where I've come from with so much more perspective because I'm not just stuck in my own narrow viewpoint anymore. And that change of perspective, that opening, feels like a moment of relief, of release, of freedom. So perhaps you're wondering, well, what kind of creature might (laughs) represent equanimity? It's a good question because it's not so easy And it took me a while to come up with, well, what's the being around here that might evoke that quality? So fortunately, a few days ago, Kim pointed out that there was a a big hawk sitting high up in a tree near the teacher village. And we looked it up, and I think it may have been a red-tailed hawk, which is relatively common in Massachusetts. So you've probably seen them circling around above the fields and soaring high in the sky with hardly any effort at all. You might notice how their wings hardly ever flap. Do you say in America getting in a flap? So they don't get in a flap. They don't get agitated. They're just soaring on these air currents. But when they do decide to do something, there's a lot of power in their action. And metaphorically, that's how I think equanimity can be. So if you see these magnificent hawks, or imagine them in your mind's eye now, maybe there's a feeling of respect, maybe even awe. And we might be reminded of equanimity's connection with seeing the bigger picture. And in fact, Kim told me that these hawks have incredibly powerful vision. They're able to see long distances with remarkable clarity. So I associate hawks with equanimity because of their connection, too, to the vastness of the sky. And sometimes when I've been on retreat here, out wandering, and I see a hawk soaring high above me, it can put my own small struggles into perspective just by imagining the bigger picture that that bird is seeing. So that's just a very brief overview of these four qualities and hopefully a little flavor or sense of how they might be experienced. By the time we have left, I'd like to just touch into how all four of them work together and the importance, actually, of practicing all four of them if we want to receive their full benefit. So just like a piece of rope that's made up of four strands rather than one, a four-ply or four-strand piece of rope is way stronger than a single ply. And in the same way, the Brahma-Vihara, all four of them, work together to powerfully strengthen our hearts and minds. So a few years ago now, I got interested in how these qualities relate to each other. When I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge, and at that time, Joseph Goldstein was one of the teachers. And the theme for one of his talks was the nature of mind. And in that talk, he quoted the 19th century Tibetan meditation master, Shabkar. You may recognize this quote. Shabkar said, The mind nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. And at that time, because I'd been on retreat for a while, you know, sometimes happens that phrase really struck me. The mind nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. And I'd been practicing with the four Brahma Vahara for quite a few weeks by then. And when I heard this image of the mind being like a flawless piece of crystal, that quality of transparency made sense to me. Because when the mind, the heart is perfectly clear, it automatically responds in the appropriate way with kindness or compassion, joy or equanimity just as a diamond naturally responds to light. So sometimes the diamond flashes red or blue or yellow, and all of these colors are possible because of the diamond's innate purity. So I was playing with that image of the diamond, and I started to think about how these four Brahma Vihara relate to each other, And that, in fact, we could arrange them in the shape of a diamond, just that simple four-pointed shape. So if you think of the diamond as being like this, we can locate metta at the bottom point of the diamond because it's the foundation for the other three. And then when metta turns towards difficulty, suffering, as I said, it manifests as compassion. So we can think of metta moving from the bottom Towards pain on one side, it becomes compassion. And on the other side, when that same metta turns towards what's going well, it manifests as mudita, appreciative joy. So we have on the two side points of the diamond, opposite each other, compassion and mudita. And then when our joy and compassion Capacities are completely in balance, they come together as equanimity. And so, equanimity is at the top point, the apex of the diamond, where it can sit totally at ease without any reactivity, just present, poised, balanced. So one way that this diamond arrangement may be helpful in your practice is to get a sense of how each of these qualities can balance each other out. So for example, if our metta practice feels like it's got a little bit dry or stale or superficial, maybe we change to compassion for a while, tune into suffering, to difficulty, to pain, and that can strengthen our sense of purpose bring more depth to the metta. At other times, there might be a lot going on in our lives and we might start to feel too swamped by tuning into suffering. And then we might deliberately need to turn to the other side, from the 10,000 sorrows to the 10,000 joys, and incline the heart-mind towards mudita, cultivating appreciation and gratitude for what's going well in our own and others' lives. There are times, though, when that mudita maybe can shade into a way of avoiding what's unpleasant or a way of clinging to what's... Sorry, a way of avoiding what's unpleasant and clinging to what's pleasant. So then, if we recognize that, we might need to come to equanimity, that steady balance of heart and mind. So this theme of balance, we can see it in all of the Brahma-Vihara qualities. And each of these qualities has ways that they can get off balance, but it's good to be on the lookout for. So in the classical teachings, these ways that the Brahma-Viharas can get off balance are known as the near and the far enemy of each state. So the far enemy is the opposite quality of what we're trying to develop. So, for example, with metta, goodwill, the far enemy is ill will. For compassion, the far enemy is cruelty. For appreciative joy, the far enemy is envy. And for upeka, equanimity, the far enemy is reactivity of any kind. Then the so-called near enemies, these are qualities that, at first glance, they might seem close to the Brahmavihara, but when we look more closely, or actually when we feel a little more carefully, we recognize they're just a little bit off in some way. So, for example, with metta or goodwill, the near enemy is often some kind of conditional kindness, kindness with strings attached or with an agenda So we act kindly to someone, but underneath there's an expectation of some kind. For karuna, compassion, the near enemy is pity. It may look like we're orienting to kindness, but it's actually a kind of an energetic separation where we're looking down on poor you over there. For mudita, appreciative joy, the near enemy can be exuberance or giddiness or attachment to the pleasant. And for upekka, equanimity, the near enemy is indifference. Fortunately, though, when we, if we, do recognize that we've moved into these near enemies, the other brahma-viharas themselves can act as the antidote. So to get a sense of this, I'd like to share a piece of writing by two English Dharma teachers, Caroline Jones and Paul Burroughs. Caroline Jones is the resident teacher at the Forest Refuge, and some of you may know her from there. So this is how she and Paul Burroughs describe all the different relationships between the four Brahma-vihara and how they balance each other out. So they say the four sublime abidings. Metta, or kindness, is the love that connects. It's an antidote to all forms of aversion. It's not attachment. If it slides into sentimentality, karuna, or compassion, brings the heart back into balance. Karuna, the love that responds, is an antidote to cruelty, cruelty, It is not pity. If it slides into sorrow, mudita, appreciative joy, brings the heart back into balance. Mudita, the love that celebrates, is an antidote to envy. It is not competitive. If it slides into agitated excitement, upekka, equanimity, brings the heart back into balance. Upeka, the love that allows is the antidote to partiality. It is not indifference. If it slides into disconnection, metta brings the heart back into balance. So in that description you might see how each of these four qualities has a distinct flavor and it can be used to overcome an afflictive mind state and then it also helps to balance the others out. You may also have noticed how each quality slides quite naturally into the next. But in the end we return again to metta. So if the last quality equanimity slides into disconnection. It's metta that brings the heart back into balance. So we come full circle. We work through each of these qualities over and over again. And that creates a spiraling journey through and around all four. And then there's this beautiful force field as these different energies of love all radiate from that clear heart that is intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. So this is where all of our efforts here on retreat are leading us. And to bring this talk to a close now, I'd like to take just a few moments of silence where you might touch in to the value of what we're doing here together and to let it be an offering to a world that so desperately needs it. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit for a moment and acknowledge what it is we're doing here.